0: Christians like to speak of holiness when talking about God. The fact that God is holy is not usually debatable among Christendom. When we talk about the holiness of God, we usually are referring to his absence of sin. The fact that God cannot sin is one we embrace early on in our Christian lives. So absolute is our ideal of God in his absence of sin that we almost dismiss the ramifications of God's holiness due to familiarity. Any true Christian will tell you that God cannot abide sin and therefore to enter heaven a person must be made holy. In addition to this, most Christians would agree that the process of making sinners into saints is called the process of sanctification. But what is holiness and sanctification? Is it a specialized Christian hobby? You see, I fear we have neglected the idea of holiness and relocated it to the backs of our minds as something that is continually ongoing, but yet not continually relevant in our lives. And nothing could be further from the truth or more insulting to a holy God. God is greatly concerned with our holiness or our lack thereof. I could say and do say that the culmination of the work of God concerning our pitiful, wretched lives is to make us holy. If holiness is of such great concern to God, why is it of such little consequence to us as his children? Do you want to be holy? Does God want you to be holy? And I would hope that your answer to the last two questions is a resounding yes. And if you did answer yes, how holy are you? Maybe we don't know exactly what holiness entails. And if we do know, maybe we have intentionally forgotten. I want us to re examine the, re-examine the concept of holiness this morning and its ramifications in our lives. First of all, what is holiness? Let's start by saying what holiness is not. Holiness is not some mystical, unexplainable quality of God and his angels. And it may be oversimplification of the term. Holiness is the act of being set apart from something else. God is holy and is set apart by his own hand from many things. In fact, his separation is supremely great. God is supremely holy or supremely set apart. In Exodus 15, verse 11, Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Ezekiel 33, or 38, verse 23, And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Who existed before the beginning? God existed. When God created, did creation become a part of God? If you were a pantheist, you would answer yes. God created everything distinctly apart from himself. Is creation dependent upon him? Certainly. Is creation part of his essence? certainly not even in his first act of creation god separates one thing from another let's read the accounts of the first 4 days of creation observe the way god creates the language of the bible indicates that god separates one thing from another <clears throat> this should be easy to find genesis 1 and the first 19 verses of the bible <clears throat> genesis 1 in the beginning And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place. And let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Now verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth God does not do anything without purpose and intent. He's not like us who sometimes do things and don't know why the reason we did it. God could have spoken all of creation into existence at one time, but instead he creates things one by one and then separates them from what was already made. It is this idea of separation that grants identity to what was created And even in the function of the sun and the moon we see separation. Their roles are to separate light from the darkness. That's verse 18. So important is holiness or separation in the mind of God that he separates the seventh day from the first six and honors it. Genesis 2 verse 3. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, brethren, we know that God did not need to rest in order to refresh himself. The resting of God was for our benefit. Not only did it allow us to refresh ourselves and to keep us from overworking, it taught us something of our creator as well. By the observance of the Sabbath, we learned that something can be made holy or or separated. The Sabbath was only one part of the creative work of God to be made holy. Holy. God set apart the Sabbath for his purpose. And we also learn that there is a difference in what is holy and what is not holy. Six out of the seven days were not made holy or sanctified. Only one day is special. And lastly, we learn that God is the sanctifying agent. Man did not pronounce the Sabbath holy because God rested. No, God pronounced the seventh day to be holy and it was holy. The only thing man did was to observe firsthand the rest of God and obey the eventual command to keep it holy. So from the beginning, God sets himself apart from everything else. In this one act, we learn two things concerning the holiness of God. First of all, God's level of holiness cannot be attained by any human being. We are created by him, already set apart from him. We cannot become God. Therefore, we can never be holy in the same degree as God is holy. Now, this does not mean we cannot be perfectly or completely holy. We can be set apart from other things, as we'll learn later in our study this morning, and be pronounced holy by God. This concept of holiness is lost on people who believe in the Mormon faith. They believe human holiness culminates with personal divinity. Secondly, God cannot be corrupted by sin. Sin is truly external to God. It is something that only creation has to wrestle with, not the creator. It is in his complete separation from his creation that God retains a level of holiness that is unique to him. Hannah recognized the uniqueness of God's holiness in 1 Samuel 2 verse 2. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. This uniqueness is manifested in different ways. For instance, God cannot sin. Now we know this fact to be true, but have we stopped to consider why it's true? Not even considering that the definition of sin is rebellions against the will of God, and how could God rebel against himself There is another reason why God cannot sin. James 1, verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Where did sin first occur? How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14:12 through 14. Sin first occurred in a created being, namely the archangel, Archangel Lucifer, the result of sin being found in him is the same result we see God perform constantly throughout history. He removes sin from his presence. Thus we read in Revelation 12, verse 3 and following, Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and his angels with him. Holiness and sinfulness cannot reside together. THIS IS A CONCEPT WE NEED TO UNDERSTAND COMPLETELY. ONCE SIN IS DISCOVERED IN HIM, SATAN IS CAST OUT OF HEAVEN. THIS WAS NOT A POLITE REQUEST OF GOD. NO, WE'RE TOLD THAT MICHAEL AND HIS ANGELS FOUGHT AGAINST HIM AND CAST HIM DOWN TO THE EARTH. HE WAS FORCIBLY REMOVED. AND WE CAN SEE IN THIS EVENT THE UTTER revulsion OF GOD WHEN HE ENCOUNTERS SIN sin is anti-holy and therefore it is anti-God. And that brings me to a second point, that our sin keeps us estranged from God. And for the Christian, let me say that another way, our lack of holiness keeps us from God. God cannot look at sin. He reacts strongly when he encounters sin. As we read this morning in Psalm 5, You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. When you consider God's commands to Israel and the ramifications for disobedience, you may start to appreciate the level of importance that God has towards sin. Consider first the breaking of the Sabbath, Exodus 31:14 and following. Observe the Sabbath, because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for the generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he abstained from work and rested. The penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death, being cut off from his people. And some people might say that the penalty is disproportionate to the crime. And if you think so, consider this next passage in Exodus 30, verses 34 through 38. "'Then the Lord said to Moses, "'Take fragrant spices, gum resin, "'ankya and galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, "'and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. "'It is to be salted and pure and sacred.'" Grind some of it into powder and place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make any incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. Did God really expect the Israelites to put to death people who wore this certain kind of perfume? yes he did you see there are several issues that arise when God speaks in these passages as well as many others concerning the conduct of Israel first God gives commands and he expects those commands to be honored by his people a person who did not obey was guilty of sin and the penalty for sin is death Romans six twenty-three: for the wages of sin is death Death has always been the penalty or wages for sin. Now you may argue that certainly the Israelites sinned and they weren't killed on the spot. True, but remember this, apart from God's continued grace, no one would be alive. And secondly, not one person to which these pages were initially written is alive today. They are all dead. The fact that every one of us, past, present, and future, is either dead in the process of dying or will die means that we all collect our wages as a result of our sin. If there is no sin, there is no death. Secondly, these two examples were one of which God was separating earthly things still under the curse of God for special use in the worship of himself. God sanctifies many things for his distinct use. From the animals that were to be sanctified to the altar on which the sacrifices were to be made to the hides of the sea cows that provided shelter for the Ark of the Covenant to even the fragrant incense used, God sanctified it all. It was set apart for his use and his use only. For these things to be used in some other function would be a desecration to both the item and a diminishment to God's holiness." Although this is uniquely true for the tabernacle and the eventual temple of God, I must say that everything in creation is truly God's and set apart for his use. Everything in creation includes us as people and you as an individual. Christian, have you ever considered yourself as being set apart by God for a distinct purpose? You are. And we'll get to that purpose in a little bit, but for now, consider that thought. To the unbeliever, let me say this. If you have ever sinned, you stand in the way of God's wrath, and his wrath against you will destroy you. You don't stand a chance. As we have seen already that God hates sin, God's reaction to sin is never to ignore it, to just pretend it never happened, or to simply excuse it sin is always dealt with by God even the little tiny sins we easily justify as completely harmless and not hurting anyone God considers any sin no matter how small to be too much sin and he acts upon it and for a completely omniscient God who sees all and knows all your sin has not escaped his notice consider again the consequences that awaited Israel God's holy and chosen people. They were put to death for breaking God's law. Israel, to whom God said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Jeremiah 31, verse 3. If God did not spare them who professed him as God and strive to live according to his commands, how do you think you will fare, you who have lived your life for the sole benefit of yourself? God removes sin from his presence, and therefore your sin keeps you from God. If it is not dealt with now, during this lifetime, it most surely will be dealt with in eternity. Isaiah 66, verse 22 and following. As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. And they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. Hell will be full of people who thought too lightly of their sin, For the Christian here today, much of what has just been said applies to us as well with one major notable exception. God has already dealt with our sin. Zechariah 3 verses 8 and 9, listen, O high priest Joshua and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. The branch springing forth from the root of Jesse was the Lord Jesus Christ, and then that day happened almost 2,000 years ago. On that day, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. And although that day is one of great joy for us, it was one of a most terrible day for God. Just before the events of that day, we find Jesus praying to his Father, and it is not a friendly conversation between loved ones. It is a conversation wrought with anguish and pain. Luke 22, 39 and following and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Jesus knew what was about to come and what he was about to go through. In his treatment and subsequent crucifixion, we see exactly how God deals with sin. Matthew 27, verse 26 and following. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it upon his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews, they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, where they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is how God treated his own son as our sin bearer. How can anyone believe they will escape punishment from God when he didn't spare his own son. God's reaction to the death of his son is immediate and violent. Reading on in Matthew 27, it says, At that moment the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Consider the guards' confession. So terrible were the events that occurred following Jesus' death that the pagan Roman guards who had nailed Jesus naked to a tree understand that they had crucified God's Son. Brethren, the severity with which God dealt with our sin ought to frighten us as well. It ought to have been you, scourged, beaten, struck with a staff, with your nest of thorns mashed into your skull. You should have been crucified, not Christ. I should have been crucified. I think that we are often in the same mindset as the unbeliever in that we think too lightly about our sin. Jesus said concerning the prostitute at Simon's house in Luke 7, verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Brethren, do you love little because you've been forgiven little? I would ask you, concerning what the Lord of glory underwent, to deal with the penalty of your sin... Why would you want to harbor the very thing that caused your Savior tremendous pain and anguish? Would you subject one of your own family to the amount of suffering that Christ endured even to the point of death so you could indulge in a little sin? I don't believe we think about this. Concerning Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, God says this in Romans 8, 32, that he, that is God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. But concerning us as adopted sons, in Malachi 3, verse 17, God says, they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him brethren we receive so much more that we deserve jesus served his father to his own death perfectly and we who never served him a day in our lives are spared how beautiful is god's grace towards sinners now i have said all of this to say uh, all that to say this our residual sin, sin still distance us from god We are not completely holy yet. Although there remains no condemnation for our sins done in the past, currently being committed, and those still to be committed in the future, our sin keeps us from being close to God. Consider 1 Peter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in the same way be considered as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Men are to act in a way pleasing to God towards their wives so that their prayers will not be hindered. You see, there is a direct consequence for acting in a sinful way. The communication that we have with God is hindered by sin we should pray with david search me O god and know my heart test me and know my anxious thoughts see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting psalm 139 verses 23 and 24. you feel like god is distant from you are you dealing with your sin are you trying to be holy If there was any doubt at all about what God desires from his people, we'll deal with that right now. 1 Peter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. If God is holy... That is completely set apart from sin, then we too must be set apart from sin. And so the command to be holy is given by God. But not only are we commanded, we are called to be holy. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 2 and 3, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God's calling is secure. Those he calls Answer. Not one remains behind. So we are commanded and we are called. And lastly, brethren, we are chosen. Ephesians 1, first, uh, verses 3 through 6. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. These texts offer the basis for all of our conduct now that the penalty for our sin has been paid. The responsibility of the redeemed saint is to get rid of the remaining sin within. Sin, if left unchecked, does not merely keep stagnant. It grows. Yeast is used to symbolize sin in the following passage because yeast grows as long as it has something to feed on. 1 Corinthians 5, 6-8 Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. There is more to holiness than merely ending in a redeemed saint free from the effects of sin. God desires us to be holy for something far greater than the sum of us all by ourselves. Ephesians 5.25-27 Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The goal of holiness is to prepare men and women to be with God forever. Revelation 21, the first seven verses I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, just exactly what are we to do? And I believe the scriptures tell us a great deal of how we should approach sin. First, I think we had better gain a proper perspective On the process of sanctification. All of us as Christians are in the battle of our lives in dealing with the old nature. The old man, although having been dealt the death blow, has a lot of fight left in him. And therefore, we need to take a lifelong, proactive approach to battling him. Paul understood the battle and wrote this to the believers in Philippi Philippians 3 7 through 14 but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. The process of sanctification is a lifelong event. Your final sanctification comes in glory. If you believe you have dealt with all of your sin on this side of eternity, consider this. 1 John 1, verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Brethren, our battle with sin ends only in the grave. If you're not actively purging sin from your soul, you've allowed the enemy to defeat you. Can't think of anything that you're doing that is sinful, you're in worse shape than you think. That brings us to our second point in that we need to take more drastic measures with our sin. Romans 6, 19 through 23. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. And what benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." A slave does not have free will to do what he wants. He must submit to his master's will. When the two wills collide, the master gets his way. That's the way slavery works. And Paul had to use this analogy because his audience was weak in spiritual thought. And maybe this is appropriate for us today. We have moved from being slaves to sin to being slaves to God. Sin is a taskmaster that ultimately kills his wards. God is a benevolent master who grants rights as sons to his slaves. Whose will would you rather serve? We ought to think that we are not our own, but servants of God, because that is exactly what we are. Before any action is taken, we should ask ourselves, will this honor my master or dishonor him? You see, a good slave wants his master to prosper, because when the master is wealthy, the servant is provided for as well. Beyond slavery, Jesus calls us to radical separation. Mark 9, 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I wonder if we dismiss this text because it is so radical of a concept. Maybe we think our sin isn't so bad. I would offer to you that the passage does not read, if your hand causes you to murder someone, cut it off. It merely mentions sin. And let me ask you, even, in this, if the, even if the text meant for us to literally cut off members of our bodies, would we walk around heaven in maimed bodies? You see, we don't trust God and his goodness towards us. We don't believe that it is better for us to do what he says we should do. What is it, brethren, that causes you to sin? You know your weaknesses. Why haven't you cut it loose from your life? Are you afraid that the cost of losing whatever it may be is not worth what God has promised? First Corinthians 2 verse 9, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. We may not know it all, but God has revealed enough to help us keep our focus on what is to come. And that is my last point. Because of God's promise to bring us to glory, we ought not to sit back and wait for the culmination of his promises, but rather encourage their completion. Concerning our time in glory, God's word says in Zechariah 14:20 20 and 21, On that day, holy to the Lord, will be inscribed on the bells of the horses. And the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the sacred bowls in the front of the altar. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy to the Lord Almighty. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and cook in them. And on that day, there will be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. You see, brethren, everything is holy down to the pots the people use to cook in. Remember that there were special bowls and basins set apart for the use of the worship of God in the Old Testament. In heaven, everything is set apart for the worship of God. Isaiah 35, starting with verse five. "Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. It will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there. Nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing, everlasting joy will crown their heads, gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Is there any doubt in your mind what our entrance in glory is going to be like? We get a glimpse here of what it means to be completely holy. There is nothing to harm, there is nothing to spoil, there is only gladness and joy. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16 through chapter seven, verse one. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. God will dwell with us at that time, but I dare say to you, Emmanuel is still with us even now. God has promised in Hebrews 13, verse 5, that never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Jesus said in Matthew 28, verse 20, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. If He is with us now, even right now as we sit here today, then we ought to be about the process of purging sin from our lives. It begins with confession. First John 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Brethren, confession does not make God aware of our sin. If it did, we'd be lost because we don't even know the extent of our sin. No, God knows all about our sin. It's been dealt with by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our confession of sin demonstrates that we realize we have a sin issue. And it ends with repentance. Consider the repentance of the Corinthian church. Second Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. I ask you, is that what your repentance entails, or does it merely resemble, Dear Lord, please forgive me for my sins. Amen. Merely confessing your sin will not purge you of it. Saying you're sorry for your sin will not purge you of it. Merely asking for forgiveness will not purge your sin. The amputation of the old and practicing what is right is repentance. And it says in that text that repentance leads to holiness. Consider finally our scripture text for this morning once again. What George read for us in Ephesians 4 and following. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen Be imitators of God therefore as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking which are out of place but rather thanksgiving for of this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person for such man is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of christ and of god let no one deceive you with empty words for because of such things god's wrath comes on those who are disobedient therefore do not be partners with them for you were once darkness But now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, and find out what pleases the Lord. This text needs no further comment. If we just do what it says, we will please the Lord. If we don't, we will grieve him. For those of you who have witnessed this examination of holiness and are without Christ as Savior this morning, I hope it has scared you to death. I hope that by looking at just how holy Christ is and how wicked sin is, it has made you painfully aware of your condition before God. If you are without Christ, you stand condemned already. The only thing that separates you from uh, burning in hell is your next breath, and that's not guaranteed to you or to any of us for that matter. Right now, God has been gracious to you. He has warned you this morning of your condition before him, and he has made a way for you to be reconciled with him. And just a moment ago, we looked at a passage of scripture that commanded us to confess our sins. This truth applies to both the saint and the sinner. If the confession is genuine, God has promised to purify you from your sin. 1 John 1, verse 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Do that today, right now, in this moment of complete lucidity. Today is the day of salvation. You have that much if you are here today. Tomorrow is not promised. Confess your sins and call on Christ to save you right now. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you are completely holy, that you are incorruptible, that you are pure, and that you are righteous. And we thank you that through Christ that we can be made pure and holy as well. We ask, Father, that we would be diligent children, trying our very best to emulate our elder brother and our father. You've commanded us to be holy, Lord. You have place that mandate upon us to be about the process as well, we're thankful for the ending point being already completed. But while we look to that point where we will be holy, Father, I pray we will be in battle with sin now. Our rest is coming. It is not here yet, Lord. And so I pray that you will find your people working to get rid of the sin that caused you to have to send your son to die to redeem us. Thank you for the truth of your word. We ask now that you bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.